Um, I was thinking, if we were to be honest, probably one of the greatest challenges at Christmas time, though there are very, very few, because Christmas time is magical, but if there were few challenges at Christmas time, it would definitely have to be, we're, can we get some more light right here? Would that be okay? Thanks, guys. If, what would they, they would definitely have to be this. This would be the challenge. Opening bad gifts in front of family and friends. I literally, I, I cringe and I'm paralyzed opening gifts in front of family and friends. Like none of us can act until that moment where all of a sudden we all become Meryl Streep, right? Like all of a sudden we can act like the best of them. So because I'm a good friend, uh, I thought what I would do is give you some helpful small tips and how to receive a bad, crappy Christmas gift to fool all your family and friends. Does that sound good? Now, I stole all of these. I bet you've probably seen them on Instagram or different social media outlets, but they're useful. If you have read them before, cool, relax, sit back, remember, memorize them. Here we go. So six small steps. You ready? Welcome to Collective Church. Six small steps, how to fool your friends. Step one, with any gift that you're going to receive this year, anticipate it that it will be bad no matter what. With every gift. And just talk about how pretty the wrapping paper is. So that's step one. Ooh, shiny. That's it. Step two, open the box and look at the present and state loudly whatever the present is. Silverware, like whatever it might be. Step three, at this point, the gift giver may sense your confusion and over-explain why they purchased it. Remember that time you used a fork and knife? Merry Christmas. Step four, then, repeat back to them what they just told you louder. <laughs> I use fork. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Step five, keep flipping the gift over in your hands, mulling it over, studying it. Read the back label and UPC code as if it holds the keys to the universe. Okay? Ooh. Mm. <laughs> and finally, the last step, step six, uh, now that a bad theme has been started, expect to receive a worse, worse, and worse gift throughout the existence of the relationship, which is probably time to call it off, right? <laughs> so that is how you do it. I hope you all took notes. Let's pray. Just joking. <laughs> We're going to teach the Bible, Brian. Now, I was thinking, as we read the Wiseman story, how did little Jesus respond to the gifts that the Wiseman brought? I don't know if any of you have actually given a gift to the child, but they are the most honest gift recipients of all time. It's brutal if you do not have thick skin. I have cried many times giving, my gifts, giving gifts to children, like many times. My daughter will straight up, if I've given her a gift, she will take it. If she doesn't like it, she's literally said to me before, ew, why? Like, why would I have this? My son, God bless him, if we've given him a gift wherever he's at, we've given him, he'll say, I don't understand it, but I love it. Namaste. Like, that's just how sweet he is. My daughter will literally set fire to the gift in front of us. Yeah, try harder. <laughs> but in regards to what was brought to Christ, this, my friends, what we just read, this is the origin of Christmas gift giving. And whether Christian or not, we probably all remember what the wise men brought to little Jesus. Gold frankincense, and myrrh. So just what every child wants, right? <laughs> myrrh! <laughs> but, but tonight for our time together, these gifts, these offerings will be the catalyst. They're going to operate as the catalyst for our focus. 
See, if you were here last week, we informed everyone that we'll be looking at the Christmas story this year through the filter of worship. We wanted to do it through the, wanted to do it through the filter of worship, desiring to be a church community to end this year on worship. But before we go any further, uh, we just have to do this right from the start, because I'm assuming if anybody here has any kind of church background, when I say the words worship, or if you've been to church gathering before, I guess, but if I say the word worship, then there's an assumption as a pastor behind the pulpit saying it that I'm talking about singing. There's an automatic assumption when I talk about worship or praise or celebration, there's an assumption that we're going to get the music, we're going to get some song. Well, yes and no. Now, I don't want to confuse anybody, so I'll just say this very briefly, that singing is a very true uh, component to worship. God is very, very serious about singing and about song. Multiple times in multiple verses, God says, sing a new song. Multiple times. God says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Raise hands. Make a shout. But we need to be aware that merely categorizing worship as song, um, that can devalue or confuse or misguide worship. God would have us want or have us know a, a much wider, a much fuller, a much deeper sense of worship. And tonight, the wise men give us that. So if you noticed, again, what Hillary read, this is a worship account. This is a worship account, yet not a single hill song, song or a Bethel song or a hymn or an acoustic guitar was played or sung. And this entire episode is a worship episode. These are very famous wise men. These are very famous gifts. That, these, that this gives us a very thoughtful understanding, a very important lesson in worship. And if you know this or not, what we see in the Bible with these wise men, their entire biography and reputation is framed in Christian history as worshipers. Not as preachers, not as journeymen. They are framed as worshipers. Their legacy right now, we're going to read it. Look at verse 1. We're going to read it one more time. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and here it is, and we have come to worship him. What we know of them is essentially nothing other than where they came from, what they came to do, and what they brought. But here's the thing, like most biblical aspects of the Christian narrative, they are highly, highly influenced uh, by you know, nostalgia or tradition other than truth. And that is the most true with the wise men of the Christmas account. So what I thought we could do just for the next few moments is sort of destroy together some Christmas traditions pertaining to the wise men. Would that be okay? So we're going to do this together. See, most Christmas traditions, most of your nativity set or your mother's nativity set or your grandma's nativity set or whatever, most of them have these wise men as kings, right? We see nowhere, though, in the Bible that they are kings. So next time you're around a nativity set or you're around your mom's nativity set, break their little crowns off. <laughs> and if she starts fighting you, call her a heretic, whatever it is. Okay? Now, the next thing that would inform us the next thing that would inform us as we're going to start looking at this is tradition would have us think that there are three of them. 
probably because of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but tradition, Christmas nostalgia, would say that there's three of them. Again, we do not read that. We do not see that in Scripture. If anything, history would inform us that a group like this, from where they came from, would have been a very large caravan of both men, women, and children. Families would have traveled together. If we read some of the other verses that we don't have time to get into, it says that they caused a lot of trouble in the city. Three men sneaking in, that doesn't really happen. They caused a ruckus. These guys called, caused a ruckus. So a giant caravan, a gang of men, women, and children would have come from the, where? The east on a very, very long, unsafe, perilous journey. And that right there, that understanding that they came from the east, that is our, our golden ticket to, to, to the train of understanding, okay? Look at verse one again. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands. So if they would have come from eastern to Bethlehem, that means they could have been Babylonians or they could have been Arabs. We do not know. But Christian or not, in this room, what we should be asking is the same unified question in this moment. Why? Why did they come? How in the world did they know about any of this? How are they in the know? Think of it this way, especially for those who were, who were here last week. Think of it this way. Those who should have known, the Jewish shepherds, those who were told, if you guys remember, they were told that the, their entire life that a Messiah was coming. And they were told this only a couple blocks over. But the Jewish shepherds, what do they get? They get an entire symphony announcing to the world, joy to the world, the king has come. But these wise men from the east, again, reason and conjecture would probably say they're from Babylon. For them, is this just a weird hunch? There is no symphony of angels inviting them. To them, is this just a weird hunch? Again, historians and scholars would tell us that their traveling journey is somewhere between 600 to 1,000 miles. Is this a weird hunch? I don't know about you, but I... I won't go to Target. I will not go to Target unless I've called them beforehand, seeing if they have the item in stock. Like, these guys are going 600 to 1,000 miles. Clearly, there is something more here. Clearly. Because what these wise men, these magi, are giving us today is a visual aid, an object lesson in the defining of true worship. See, if we talked about, we did talk about it last week, but I wanted to remind us all that the word worship means worthship. Means worthship. That's to designate true value to, to anything, really. And thus respect and, re and recognize it and respond to the worth that it has. Again, that is surely more than a song, but no less than singing. Uh, very famous author Oswald Chambers, he says it. This way, he goes, worship is giving God the best that he has given you. Be careful. Be careful what you do with the best that you have. The Magi were careful with what they had. For some here, this is a very sharp exhortation, and for some here, a reminder that the Magi did something. The Magi did something with the revelation. If you notice in the reading, the Magi had just had this convergence of natural revelation of God, the mysterious, mysterious star. 
Now, this supernatural revelation is not too shocking to these magi. That word magi meaning like astronomers, astrologists. So for these guys, deciphering stars, reading the star messages, star laws, star's purpose, this isn't too much for them. They understand this. This is normal to them. But for us, whatever this star is to them, whatever that star was, we truly do not know. We have no idea. And any guesses would be speculation. There's a German scientist who's trying to prove that three planets lined up right at that moment, and that's what it happened to be at that time. Speculation. It's all guesses. But this is what we do have to think and know. That from the East, these wise men obviously saw something familiar from Scripture because God then causes this unusual heavenly activity to inspire them to grab one another and start freaking out and saying, we have to go. Do you see this? It's here. It's finally happening. And like the shepherds last week, they are grabbing each other saying, let us go. This is what we have been waiting for. So they have the convergence of this natural revelation. And then we see the convergence of this with written revelation. Look at verse four. These wise men know what has been written. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. Verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and not at least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Okay, so let's bear with me. Let's go down the rabbit hole here because this will be fun. But this is another guess, but it's a safe one. These Arabs or Babylonians are looking for a Hebrew king. They are looking for a Hebrew king. This would have actually have been taught what it seems in their Magi schooling. Again, another mystery is why in the world is the coming of a Hebrew king in their Magi, Persian, Babylonian textbooks? Who cares to them? Why do they care? Well, again, rabbit hole time. I'm pumped. Bear with me. Could it be because generations earlier, a man by the name of Daniel, who remembers the lion's den guy, the lion guy, him, Daniel was so favored by the Babylonian king at that time due to interpreting his dreams that what happens is Nebuchadnezzar then appoints him to be ruler over the magi and the wise men of their, of their time, of their kingdom. You can look at Daniel chapter two for those details. We don't have time to get into it. And since Daniel is a devout Jewish man in exile and was in charge of their education, guess what he would have told them about? Guess what he would have taught them? He would have taught them the Hebrew Bible. He would have taught them the Old Testament, and he would have taught them promises of a coming king. So not only would they have been taught this, they would have been eagerly expecting this from day one of school. All of this education, all of this guidance, all of this pondering and waiting and wanting, bringing them to a position, a place of worship. Again, they did something about the promises of God. It didn't just reside in their head. They, like the shepherds, went. Okay, so church, if the Bible, if doctrine, if the, the gospel the good news of Jesus, ever takes up residence within our heads and becomes a hermit. If that ever happens, we are in grave, grave danger. 
Um, I, there's this really disturbing documentary on Netflix. I don't know if anybody watched it. It's about a man who purchased a motel. Anybody see this? He purchased a motel um, for the pure purpose of spying on people. It's a disgusting, disturbing documentary, but it's actually, it's, it's heart-wrenching. And he would spy, and what was happening was, since he spied for 30, 40 years, since he spied, he saw everything from murder to drug deals. And he couldn't do a thing about it. Or excuse me, he chose not to do a thing about it. And so in this documentary, essentially what happens is, is after it's been 50 years of something insane, he decides to tell the world. And he, 30 years ago, he let a journalist in on it, and 30 years go by, and him and the journalists are constantly talking. There's mountains of paperwork about this, about this voyeur. And um, the, obviously, the book is released, the documentary comes out, and they start getting so much flack. So much criticism, obviously. But the number one critique they got is you didn't do anything about what you knew. You sat motionless, you sat silent, you sat unfazed about what you knew about the evil that was going on in these hotel rooms. So when the gospel of Jesus Christ stops affecting our mind or our will or our emotions or our affections and we sit silent or motionless or unfazed, then hear me out, we are no longer in worship. We are no longer in worship. And to be out of worship is to be out of our purpose. This is called disembodiment. This is disembodiment. Charles Taylor, in his amazing book, it's like 800 pages, super thick, theological, philosophical work called The Secular Age. Has anybody read it for fun? No? Have you really read it for fun? Oh, <laughs> it's really intense. But he calls this disembodiment excarnation. Excarnation. This is what Charles Taylor says. He goes, The transfer of our religious life out of bodily forms of ritual, worship, practice, so that it comes more and more to reside in the head. This is the steady disembodying of spiritual life. This is excarnation. Now, hear me. Christians are supposed to obviously be an intellectual and have reason, and philosophize, and, and, and write, and, and, and the like. But again, that is for, towards, towards the goal of glory and his purpose. So I'm not poo-pooing like intellect or reason, okay? I'm talking about those who have a bountiful knowledge of Christ, those who have a bountiful knowledge of doctrine, the Lord and the Bible, and it's all just kind of massaging their brains, but never invokes a response. Their inside man is parched or thirsty or dying. Matthew tonight, we're going to get to this, Matthew tonight is painting for us as if he held two giant canvases, uh, one massively dark and one massively bright. He's trying to show us a juxtaposition, a stark contrast between Herod and the Magi, between Herod and the Magi. Basically what's happening is, as we look at this, the scriptures are to pull out a response. The scriptures are just never just there to massage us. They are to pull out a response, to invoke a response. And so what we have to do is when we read this and what we look at this, is these verses are here for every single one of us, whether Christian or not, to read this and discover which, with, with whom am I identifying with, Herod or the Magi. 
Herod, or the wise men? And again, if I ask this question, I'm assuming that most of us immediately go, well, <laughs> the Magi, of course, not Herod. Of course the Magi, I'm not a child executioner like Herod. Don't even do that, Casey. But if we immediately jump to that, which I confess that I've done and do, that is inferior reading of the author's contrast. Here's what I mean. Herod, if you know this or not, was actually identifying himself as a religious man. Herod was observant of all Jewish laws. He consistently projected an image of obedience to God, the very God we say we worship. That is Herod. But the Christmas story, the wise men speaking with Herod about the true king who hails from Bethlehem, what they've just done is like take a lit political piece of dynamite and set it within his chest. Herod's very real knowledge of God led him not to worship, but self-preservation, self-rule, and self-image, which might be true of some of us here tonight. Herod was, was, he was an excarnated man. So to make it really relevant, to make it really relevant, excarnated beings are those who love, enjoy, and faithfully come to a church gathering, but never participate either in service, in worship, or in relationships. Excarnated are those who attend discipleship groups for the mere purpose of gaining knowledge. Excarnated are those who attend discipleship groups but never seek to transfer themselves or the others in those discipleship groups. Excarnated are those who give financially but as an afterthought or legalistic duty. Excarnated are those who like to philosophize about the church but never tend to its problems or needs. Excarnated are those who love to read the Bible but never seek to change from the Bible. Let me overstate it this way just so it's really clear. If at a Sunday gathering, much like this, we can know intellectually and philosophically that God is good and God is worthy of all of our trust, if we know that, then, you know, well, Herod would have known. But then come Monday... We are working our fingertips bloody to fix our problems, to solve all of our issues and our ability to, if we're just ridden and rotten with anxiety and worry, fearful of our place, power, and presence and personhood, then bear with me that we haven't worshipped. One of the most brilliant theologians ever, Jonathan Edwards, says it like this. If we don't find that our affections have been moved from earthly idols towards God, we haven't worshipped. Friends, excarnation is deadly. And it's a very, very real temptation for you and for me. It's the decap, you know, the, the cap, de de decapulation or de how do you the decapitation of, of, of a spiritual life. That's what it is. It removes truth. Here's what it does. It removes truth from, from, from our affections, and that is very dangerous. 
To worship honestly is our protest to only attaining, attaining knowledge within our heads, within our minds, like Herod. Worship is where truth descends down, like our Christmas story from heaven to earth. Truth must descend down from our mind to our affections and move us. Not emotionalize us, it moves us, it changes us. I like how um, Bishop N.T. Wright says it. I like how he says everything, but I like this quote. He goes, put it this way. If your idea of God, if your idea of the salvation offered in Christ is vague or remote, your idea of worship would be fuzzy and ill-informed. The closer you get to the truth, the clearer becomes the beauty, and the more you will find worship welling up within you. That's why theology and worship belong together. The one isn't just a head trip, the other isn't just emotion. This should, if you're a Christian, if you read the Bible, maybe spark your memory of what Jesus said, that God is looking, uh, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is looking for worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship, collective church, is the space of transformation of belief to behavior. Now, the remedy to excarnation, philosopher Charles Taylor tells us is this. This is the remedy. He says to discover and rediscover and rediscover and rediscover the incarnation. Or in other words, the Christmas story. N.T. Wright again. I'll read it one more time. Bear with me. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing at all. What the incarnation, what this Christmas story gives each and every one of us is God totally. And that means everything or it means nothing at all. I don't know what the incarnation means to you, but I hope that it means everything or it means nothing at all. God got all up in our biology he got all up in our circumstance. The incarnation is God getting up within our history. He came entirely. God given in Jesus fully, totally, entirely. I want us to all know this because this is a huge lie that many believe about the God of the Christian faith is that he is a tease, that God teases us. I know there are men and women in this room right now who said, God, I've been promised this and I haven't gotten half of it. I haven't gotten any of it. God, you are a tease. Friends, if that, if that is you, if you believe that, the Christmas narrative is for you. God does not give halfway. He doesn't give himself moderately. God is a reckless giver reckless to you and to me by giving himself entirely, recklessly. See, the Magi know this. The Magi respond to this. The Magi teach this to us right now, and they prove that belief in their offering by giving recklessly and entirely. So let's get into it for the next few moments if we can. But before we do that, I want to get into what they brought. But before we do that, let's continue to destroy Christmas tradition. Okay? I can tell I'm losing some of you. Kevin, you with me? Let's destroy some more Christmas time. All right? Everybody with me? The child that these wise men are about to go and see 
Historians, scholars, and theologians will tell you baby Jesus is more like toddler Jesus, okay? He's probably around one and a half, two years old. That makes sense? Everybody sound good? I do have a small note here to make a pun where it says toddler, more like godler. I'm going to wait. It says to also wait for the applause to die down. All right, verse 9. That was for you, Cassandra. Verse 9. And the star they had seen in the great eastern guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Verse 11. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. This isn't little toddler Jesus with a halo above his head. His skin is not glowing. Baby Jesus does not have a scepter in his hand going, blessings for you and you and you. And hear me out. This is going to really upset some people. Hear me out. I believe we have biblical proof from the book of Isaiah that Jesus probably wasn't even a cute kid. Okay? He could have even probably been unattractive. Okay? There was nothing, I say all that because there was nothing majestic about Jesus' appearance. He is every man. He is every toddler. He is the average Joe of little toddlers. <laughs> okay? So I don't want any of us picturing like Jonathan Taylor Thomas toddlers. <laughs> JTT. If you're too young to know him, like little One Direction toddlers or whatever millennials are into. <laughs> Not all kids are cute. There, I said it. So for them to physically, this is where I'm building to, for them to physically come before this toddler, to physically come and see this child and fall down and worship without lights, without amazing music, and without some cute glowing skinned baby, that, my friends, is a glorious vision of how truth initiates, truth initiates our worship in even the most unlikely places. This isn't forced worship. This isn't fabricated. This isn't pretend. This isn't fake worship. These wise men wanted nothing from Jesus other to, than just, just to adore him. We think about it. What more could they want from a child? What more could they want from a little two-year-old? Well, Jesus, now that I got your ear, <laughs> listen, buddy. <laughs> no, he's a child. Faith was driving this. You don't fall on your face and worship a two-year-old without truth initiating that. Have you been around a two-year-old? You don't want to worship. All they could do, all these wise men could do was treasure him, be with him, express their affections, gaze, they're probably watching as Jesus would fall over as he walked. It was just like, oh my gosh, that's God falling over. Like, they're blown away that, G, that God of the cosmos has eyelashes. They're probably looking at his fingernails like, this is insane. The treasury in him, blown away by him. Verse 11, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, it's clear. That's the easy one, right? That's, everybody gets that one. 
Gold is for royalty. This was obviously something very, very, very common that you give gold to royalty. That's how you pay tribute. Frankincense was a kind of incense. If you know that or not, it's kind of incense. It's actually the very incense that they would burn in the temple where they would worship God. It's a very familiar smell. Both of those fulfillment of prophecy in Psalm, 90, excuse, Psalm 72 within the Old Testament. But lastly, myrrh. Ah, good old myrrh. My personal favorite of all the gifts. This was a spice to embalm the dead. This was a spice that they would rub on the body before they wrapped in linens. Friends, you can only imagine Mary's face as they hand her essentially the equivalent of a coffin. That's what it is. It's the equivalent of a coffin they just gave this little toddler. That is a disturbing Christmas gift. That is odd. This is... <laughs> Never mind. But... Here's the thing. Each of these gifts, and this is the point I really want us to take away with for tonight, each of these gifts is the wise men's earthly appraisals of Jesus' worth. So I want to get to the question that I have been building to all night, is what is Jesus worth to you? It's not the most genius of all questions, but I dare say probably one of the more important of all questions. See, if you wanted to run right now in this moment a quick diagnostic of oneself, assess your worship, excuse me, your worship of his worthship. I would encourage you to assess your worship of his worthship. Like author Eugene Peterson said, a people's lives are only as good as their worship. Worship defines life. If worship is corrupt, Life will be corrupt. So with that, how we praise, how we worship, and how we live for Jesus Christ is an appraisal of his worth to us. Let me explain that more. How we give financially to God in worship appraises our trust in his provision. How we speak of one another and to one another appraises our belief that we are all made in the image of God. How we grieve loss of any kind appraises our hope in him. Is this making sense, I hope? How we cry and suffer appraises our joy in him. So I ask, is your, is our, is my life one of showcasing his worth? Through all the various, various ways one could worship, is it showcasing his worth? Like the Magi, what types of offerings and gifts in worship are you bringing? Half-hearted? Leftovers? Full? Rich? Lukewarm? Cold? Hot? Stale? Friends, this is a temptation and natural drift for every single one of us in here. Not because our worship has slowed down, but because we have given that very worship to other lesser worths. Unchristians here, if you're here and you're not a believer and you're irreligious, when I think about the Christmas story, when I think about the wise one, when I remember hearing it when I was not following the way of Jesus, I remember thinking, mm, that would be nice if that was true. 
I remember thinking, I am exhausted in testing different pools of worth. You might be exhausted as well of giving your affections to lesser undeserving worths. The pain of bruised affections. The Savior Jesus is worthy of your affections, your honest worship. Christians here, I say this gently and firmly as a friend and as a pastor and as a brother in Christ. Anything less than honest, wholehearted worship is an insult to the Lord. It's insulting. There's a book in the Old Testament called Malachi. And it has this dialogue between people who give God half-hearted worship and the Lord himself. I'm going to read just a portion of it to you, but you're going to see God's, God being insulted. It says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If, thy, if, then I, if I'm your father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? And verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. And then I'm going to jump to verse 13 of chapter 1 of Malachi. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, it's the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. It is, it is very, 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 very possible for us to be in worship, to us to worship all the while insulting the one we are worshiping. Much like the infamous Cain and Abel episode in Genesis chapter 4, where it was an offering of mediocre, which was saying to God, you are mediocre and not a great king, as God says. So for both the unchristian and the Christian here tonight, the Christmas story is a revelation about God giving all of himself, this is huge, so that men and women can trust all of themselves to him. And from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what Christ accomplished and what the Holy Spirit assures is that we no longer need to wait for sacrificial systems, for, for blood to be spilled, for the temple doors to come open. Even to now, we do not need the church doors to swing open. With the birth and the death and the life and the miracles and the work and the preaching and the teaching of Jesus, with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus has brought to us today, is that worship... Worship is now deinstitutionalized, delocalized, deritualized from the focus of ceremony, seasons, and places, and now shifts to heart-oriented, life-oriented worship. Friends, this is the formation of worship that we are supposed to take part, partake of every day. This is how we are to act and relate and give and love in such a way that it heralds the value and worth of God in all of life. This is the basic form of worship living. Paul in the New Testament says like this. I'm going to wrap it up here. Paul says like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Your, your spiritual worship. Offering the best of ourselves and lives. Knowing that, then we read things like 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Whatever you do, 
Do all to the glory of God. We also read things like Colossians 3. Whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, God our Father. Christians, all the verses that speak of worship in the New Testament, they are not describing a church service. They are describing your life and my life. See, worship is this climate of where we are supposed to breathe and live. So, now, now we're going to worship in response. And I say this because of what I hope has not been misconstrued or confused anybody, is what I, when I say we're going to respond right now in worship, what I'm not saying is, all right, you guys, time to perform, time to pretend you're perfect, time to power through it. No, no, no. I am not, but more importantly, God is not asking you to pretend to fake it. Individually, as we worship right now, as you respond, if there is anybody here in this room who is weak, who is melancholy, who is broken, who is angry, who is frustrated, who is fearful, allowing God into those very real recesses where our affections lie, where our affections have been mangled, that is honest worship. I want to read you King David's discussion of worship in Psalm 51 after he was called out for committing not only murder, but adultery. And this is what he says in his little journaling to God. He goes, And I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And then here it is. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So we don't just worship privately right now in this moment. We also worship corporately. And singing is the way we do that. We've talked about that tonight in a very real way. This, though, I want us to understand when we sing. I, I, man, I pray for our church to really understand the potency and power of singing together. That may seem like a weird prayer, but it's when we sing, sing, and lift our arms together, and we stand next to one another together singing. That is the full stature of growing together in Christ. To worship amongst those who have been captured as well by the light of the Christmas gospel to worship amongst those who did not, we did not choose them to be here. We did not save them. They were hand-selected by God to be in this church at this time, in this moment, and we get to stand next to them and sing. So maturity and unity develop a church community when we start singing with not people that we're best friends with, not those who are the preferred, but one another who as well has been saved and called to his marvelous light. Tonight, friends, may we sing and come to the carpets to raise our hand vibrant and loudly. May we come up and grab the double stack cups, the symbolic representation that God gave everything is right here in these cups. And then lastly, I'm going to encourage all of us, including myself, to go and receive, receive prayer from the people in the back, two on that wall, two on that wall, and ask a very humble prayer, which is asking that every conduit of our lives would be marked by wholehearted, honest, real worship. Let's pray.